Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Hayward. The COVID-19 pandemic is rolling around the world, extinguishing expected futures and opening up the possibilities of different ones. At FuturePod, we have decided to speak to some of our previous guests and ask them what this moment in time means for them and more importantly, to all of us. If you would like to know more about the guests we speak to, then please check out their earlier interview on the website futurepod.org. Today, our guest is Richard Haynes. Welcome again to FuturePod, Richard. Thank you very much, Peter. It's good to be talking to you. Thanks, Richard. So, what sense are you making of what is happening? And what do you think is ending? And what do you think is beginning? Ah, what a, what a wonderful question to start off with. As you know, my space for any kind of thinking about what is happening in the world, I use a, an analogy of, well, I call it the expanded now. So if you, if you think of an ocean with all the life teeming in it and the dynamics happening in that ocean, it's so vast that you can't really see into the depths to know what's happening, but you know there are, there are ripples and surf and tides and different patterns going on. You can't see as far as the furthest shore, and even looking back to see where you might have come from, that's probably disappearing into the distance too. So we're talking about a vast ocean, not of water, but of knowledge. And so that, for me, the expanded now comprises the totality of human knowledge and experience and uh, relationships. That, for me, is the context, Peter. So I put that kind of question into that context. What do I sense is happening? I think one of the first things that's really important to understand is that the ideology of individualism and of separation, separation from each other and separation from nature, which we've kind of practiced, especially over the past hundred, couple of hundred years, fairly deeply and fairly intensively, is actually coming back to haunt us to the extent we're now using this as a strategy, this, this isolation, this separation, this uh, self-imposed duty to stay away from others, we're actually using as the strategy for how we deal with a fairly unknown virus. So what I sense going on is a confusion about who we are and what is working and what is not. The sense of panic in some places compared with the sense of calm and going about one's daily life in other places is actually quite profound. It's a profound moment. I shocked some people the other day because I said, I'd I'd actually written about this And I said, in some senses, the COVID-19 virus, which is related to SARS, as you know, is a threat. I don't think it's the the huge destructive pandemic that we've been promised by scientists. In in some senses, I think it's a dress rehearsal for that. But the other thing I said was, it's not merely a threat, it's also a gift, because it's allowing us to stop and pause and take a breath to try to understand more deeply what we are doing that works in our favor and that benefits us all 
and what we've designed in society that we take for granted that it's the way things should be and it's the natural order of things, but in fact works against us and has become quite toxic. So the thing that I sense particularly about this moment in time is that ethos of separation has worked against us in this case because the virus emanated from animals, uh, originally probably bats or or chickens or or whatever. It's come from uh, another species and it's leapt the species into the human species. And if we had a different relationship with other species and a different relationship with nature and a closer, more caring relationship with each other and the environment, then quite possibly this wouldn't have happened or it would have happened differently. It would have been not such a threat as it's turning out to be. It's interesting you talk about how we've got this very individual-centric culture and, of course, it's we, we don't have to go back a lot of generations to certainly, you know, my parents and I'm sure yours, that we actually had a history and, in fact, a long history of, of living together and supporting one another. Yes, we do. But it's interesting, isn't it, that when I was at school, so going back a long period of time, but when I was at school, one of the things I was taught was that the uh, most obvious communitarian societies were in Asia. Now, I live, as you know, in one of those at the moment. I've been living in Thailand in the far northeast of the country in a tiny little village near the Mekong for the past 16 years. And I live in a village of perhaps about 100 families. And the, the level of commu- sense of community here has been disappearing fast. And even here, the competitive nature of one individual family against another individual family is, is quite a problem. It's become more individualistic, if you like, than uh, in somewhere like Melbourne or Sydney. It's interesting because one of my, when I talk to Josh Floyd, who, who you know very, very well, one of the kind of things that Josh would say is that to some extent our wonderful short-term energy bounty you know, gave us the opportunity to kind of convince ourselves that we actually didn't need other people to actually live a sustainable life. Mm, that's, that's absolutely correct. And, of course, what this is teaching us is that we do. We need each other more than at any other time. If you just look at what could happen out of this gift to the global economy and how we might restructure things differently, it will most likely be in the recognition that community health and well-being is above all what we need to protect and cater for rather than the individual whims of people who will hoard wealth, for example. Yeah. So, that, I mean, I think out, out of this, what we're going to see is a, a movement towards a greater understanding for how we can change one of the greatest things we've ever invented, uh, which has given us so much, which is the system of capitalism. I think this is going to hasten the changing of that, the morphing of capitalism into something far less predatory, far more protective, and far less toxic than it has become uh, in the past two or three decades. So, Richard, just for the listeners, um, I mean, we're talking about 
you know, a dynamic, emergent set of you know, possible futures. What kind of things you know, are you going to be looking for or paying attention to to sense what seems to want to emerge? Okay, so this, this is multi-layered, of course, and multi-contextual. So I would be looking at signs of emotional and psychological change. And at the moment, uh, all the signs are a breakdown in, in those kinds of contexts. I would be looking at the physical environment to see what is happening there. And one of the most remarkable things, of course, that's happening is as industry and manufacturing and production slows down and even stops in some parts of the world, it's actually giving an opportunity for nature to reestablish itself. Yes. So in Hubei province, for example, for, they haven't seen a really blue sky uh, for many, many years, and they're now seeing this. They're, they're breathing air, which is fresher. In Venice, uh, the, the devastation in Italy has been extraordinary. But in Venice, for example, where there are no visitors now, the Vaporetti have stopped. Even some of the, um, the gondoliers have just shut up shop. They're now seeing clear blue water in the... And the swans are back. The swans, the ducks, the, the fish. They're seeing fish. And so uh, that's, that's happening too. Oh, the one thing I should mention too is that what is going to happen and is happening now is the realisation that a lot of the rules and regulations governing our society that have been reactive and arbitrary are being shown to be just that. So, for example, last week in the United States, the body responsible for transport security and air, air security in particular has now allowed, has, has abolished the four ounce or 100 milliliter ruling for taking liquids and gels on aeroplanes, but only for hand sanitizers. <laughs> but if you can allow if you can allow a 12 ounce bottle of hand sanitizer to go on an aeroplane, then surely you could take shampoo or perfume or whatever it happens to be. So a, a lot of the rules that we've imposed on each other are unnecessary. They were arbitrary and they're, they're being shown to be that. On a timescale, we're going to see an evolution of societal reaction that will uh, slowly allow us to wake up to the realities of what is happening rather than the kind of fear and panic that is saturating people's thinking and behavior at the moment. The, um, that, that's very, very important because it comes down to governance as well. One of the reasons for why a lot of people in Australia have been panicking, I mean, you, can't, you really can't blame people when the messages to them have been so confused and confusing from one moment to the next. And these messages in the main are coming from a government that over the past decade has trained us to be fearful of everything from Muslims to the intelligentsia to uh, the poor, the unemployed, the homeless. Uh, you know, we've been trained, we've been inducted into being fearful. And, and now it's impossible for them to say, well, trust us, trust us, uh, trust what we say, because we, we can't, we can't trust what they say now. And so that, that has caused this initial panic 
as that dies down and we begin to get the reality sinking in, I think there'll be a waking up to what is possible that we thought was impossible before. Yes, I would imagine that on a very simplistic level, one thing would be that for a lot of people who would have liked the chance to try and work from home and and fit their work in, you know, more with their family life, and they would have had an organisation saying that, you know, we couldn't possibly arrange working from home. It's going to be very hard to put that genie back in the bottle when supposedly normality returns. Oh, yes, it will. Uh, and it's there are a couple of things there that are really interesting. I mean, we know from previous data that working for, from home, for most people, and so, so I'm talking a, a real majority of perhaps 80% or more who work from home, is far more productive individually, but also for the company or organization they work for, than working from uh, an office in the city. We know too that part of the routine of going into the city to work in an office is one of the causes of so much social breakdown and problems with transportation and you know the rush hour, for example, and dealing with the, the hordes going rushing in and out of the city at certain times of the day. But but one of the interesting things that's emerging now is that as whole teams work from home and virtually online, they're having to rediscover and reinvent the things that are the social cohesion when they're at work. You know, the parties, the drink sessions, the the catch-ups, the informality of socialization at work are having to be recreated online because you can't just work from home and treat it in a strict formal sense of, I now need a meeting with Peter Hayward, it's nine o'clock, it's going to last for 30 minutes, then I have to go and do something. Because that simply, that level of formalization will not work in the long term. What we have to do is recreate the socialization aspects of working together and close together uh, in a very different uh, online and virtual environment. Yes, and we won't necessarily know how to do that, but people's ingenuity and creativity, um, you'd imagine, would kick in. I imagine one of the things that will actually have to be solved fairly quickly is that one thing that you tend to have when you are co-located with your work team is you often are pretty good problem solvers as a group. In other words, something happens to Richard, Richard doesn't know what to do, he throws it out to the person across the road saying, I just had X, anyone got any ideas? And then someone will, you know, then might suggest, you know, you might want to try this or look at that. But you can imagine people working from home actually feeling more isolated in a work sense at a time when they need their workmates and they need the ability to kind of problem solve together. Yes, we need each other more than ever. And finding ways, okay, if there's going to be a physical separation, we need to find ways of healing the potential of psychological and emotional isolation because that could be devastating. I don't hide from the fact that we're likely to see a spike in loneliness, anxiety, depression, and suicide uh, during this time. I think we probably will. That's why we need each other. That's why we need to connect, even perhaps if there's no reason 
I had a call the other day from a very close friend, and he said, are you okay? And he's, he happens to be in Australia, down at Ocean Grove. And I said, yes, I'm okay. And we chatted for about 20 minutes. And he said, you promised that we'd check in on each other occasionally. And of course, and that kind of thing is, that kind of impulse to do that, I think is most important at this time, to check in on each other. Yes, and and again, I think it's this thing, what you're saying is the gift side of this, that we get a chance, it stops a lot of things that we thought were unstoppable, and we have a pause and the opportunity to, to again, move into this, you know, one of the powerful ideas we have in our space, Richard, is this notion of the future is something that we can create. Yes. And the sense of how we feel agency to create something. Yes, indeed. Yes, and that's something that others need as well. We need that individually and, of course, with institutions, organisations, communities, That because that is that is how hope and optimism can be injected into routines that can be very banal and depressing. Uh, so we need that. We need that mindset of being able to create the future. And one of the interesting things uh, that young people all around the world now are insisting upon is, is exactly that, that the future belongs to them and that it is their right, it is a human right for them to help create that future. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. In terms of sort of yeah, summing up where you sit and you know, where you kind of, where's your sense of where this might go and you might go as this kind of you know, plays out? Like you say, this is, this is, this is happening over, over deep and long time frames. This is actually a generational and multi-generational disturbance that you know, we're living through. Yes, it is. I'm very hopeful that it gives us a chance to really reflect very deeply on who we are and what we want as a species. If, if we actually think that we can return to business as usual, and I, I heard Ian Lowe, the governor of the, the Reserve Bank of Australia the other day, it was reported to me as saying, don't worry, folks, within five months or eight months or a year, we'll have returned to business as usual. That I found absolutely horrifying <laughs> because there is so much about business as usual that actually doesn't work. Yeah. And, you know, from the Centre for the Futures perspective, where our 100-year agenda is to redesign the human purpose on this earth, I have a very strong allergic reaction to anyone saying that we can go back to business as usual. But again, uh, on the other side of evidence, where you, if you look for evidence of that, I can't find any evidence at the moment that there is any opportunity at all to return to what was the norm. You know, the context is changing at the moment, and it will have changed completely. And I think we will have to reinvent and transition into a different kind of society where empathy and compassion and societal well-being are put ahead of monetary gain and profits. 
That's lovely. A lovely sense. I agree completely, Richard. I think the further we leave what was once regarded as normal behind us, and the longer this goes on, the less we will wish to return to some fantasy place or wonderful place when most of us deep down didn't think it was all that great. No, and a lot of it was delusional, to be honest. I mean, if you just take the obvious in terms, because everyone wants to talk about getting the economy back on its feet, we're heading for, I mean, I've, I've said for a while that Australia's heading for a recession, and I, I don't resile from, from that. In fact, I think we're headed into a global depression if um, the, the virus isn't halted soon. Uh, I think that will create problems we're not actually seeing at the moment and life will become a little difficult for quite a while. But, uh, yeah, I, I think in the long term, the outlook is far more beneficial uh, and that we'll move into a different place entirely where sustainability and a regenerative consciousness brings us new hope and a new, new ways of relating to each other and working with each other that actually avoids what otherwise I would have seen as the probable extinction of the species by the turn of the next century. I think perhaps we can now avoid that. Yes, well, we actually are probably just in terms of net carbon emissions, while this mightn't be the way that we would arrange or design an economy and a way of living, but we know this is giving us at least a glance about what it looks like to live with a lower carbon intensity. Uh, doesn't it just? It's it's as though nature has said, okay, uh, we're going to re we're setting the reset button. We're pressing the reset button. Yes, it does seem that way. Well, look again. Thanks you very much for taking time out, and certainly all the best to to you and your family in in Thailand. And and I do thank you on behalf of the community for taking some time out to to talk to us at this important time in our lives. It's a great pleasure always, and I just want to send my best wishes to everyone in the Foresight community and everyone touched by Foresight, and uh, keep well and stay safe. And wash our hands. Uh, definitely wash our hands with soap and water for 20 seconds at least four times a day. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Pleasure. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.